morning we'll be reading from Matthew 28 for our scripture passage. Matthew chapter 28. Our sermon this morning will be looking at the calling of the apostles. And here in Matthew 28, we see Jesus commissioning them to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let's read together Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Praise, we come to God's word together. Lord, we pray as we open up the word together that we would hear your voice calling us, that we would see your work for us, and that you through your spirit would do these things now. Each one of us needs to be changed. Each one of us needs to grow. And Lord, we pray that you would be faithful to your promise to do that work by your word and by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name alone. Amen. This morning our sermon comes from Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. That's Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. Let's read this section of God's word together now. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, 
so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, and he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Remember where we've been in the Gospel of Mark. You would think as we get to these passages, this passage in front of us this morning, that Jesus would have every right to be discouraged. We've looked at that previously, right? That there, he has faced so much opposition in his ministry. Sometimes we face opposition in our witness as well, but nothing to what the extent that what Jesus has been facing here. He could have been easily discouraged at this point in his ministry. Remember, he's had multiple times now where there's been a building opposition to him. The Pharisees have been misunderstanding him. And as we looked at last week, they finally reached the point of openly rejecting him and planning for his death. But in the face of that opposition, which Jesus knows full well, Jesus continues his mission. He continues to save his people. That's what he's doing. And we see in our passage this morning, Jesus advancing that very same mission in what might seem like an unexpected way, by choosing men to serve him. It leads us to our main point this morning. Jesus advances his mission by appointing the apostles to share in his ministry. Jesus is at work. He hasn't given up. And he is now advancing his mission by appointing the apostles to share in his ministry. This is good news for us this morning. It is good to see Christ establish the apostles because here we see Christ building his church. Christ is laying the foundation stones of his church in this passage. And today we benefit from and participate in that work of Christ. So as we see Christ advancing his mission, building his church, we'll see it in three points. See first, Jesus ministers to the people in verses 7 to 12. See then that Jesus appoints the apostles in verses 13 to 19. And finally, we'll see that Jesus reveals the purpose of his mission also in verses 13 to 19. So first, Jesus ministers to the people, verses 7 to 12. These verses here are a progress report about Jesus' ministry. Right? We just saw the series of stories about the opposition to Jesus because Jesus was revealing the grace and the goodness of God. But in verses 7 to 12, we see Jesus continuing his ministry. He heals many, verse 10, and he casts out demons, verse 11. Jesus does not stop being faithful to the task that was given him by his father. He does not stop being faithful because men are beginning to oppose him. In fact, the Pharisees and others 
hate Jesus for the very reason that he is being faithful to what God has called him to do. But what is the task that God has given him? What is Jesus' mission? When Jesus preaches, like we've seen in other passages, and when he heals and casts out demons like what we see here, when he does these things, he is proclaiming and bringing the kingdom of God. That's been his message all the way from chapter 115 onward. Remember, that was his first sermon. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' mission is to show that God is bringing his saving, powerful rule on earth through Jesus Christ. And all people are meant to repent and believe in this good news. And despite all that opposition and despite even the plans to kill Jesus, if you look at verses 7 to 12, it looks like Jesus' mission is going very well. Look at verse 7. He goes to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, Idumean, from beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. This looks like success. You know, many, many people came from all over the region to see Jesus. Now, we might expect people to come from Galilee and Judea. That's right where Jesus is actually based. Maybe some people would make the trip up from Jerusalem. It would be a couple of days' journey at most. But people are coming from far distances. They're coming from Edomia in the very far south. They're coming from east across the Jordan. They're even coming from the Gentile territories of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus is becoming a religious celebrity of sorts. People are flocking to see him. But why are they coming? Why are all these people coming to Jesus? Well, we just saw it. These people come because they had heard all that he was doing. They heard what he's doing and they know that they need what he can give them. They come because they need healing. Verse 10, all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him and he healed them. They come because they need a demon to be cast out. Verse 11, whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Each one of these people who makes this journey to see Jesus knows that they need Jesus' power and they know that he will act for them. But do they know that they actually need Jesus, not just his power? The reason I ask that question is because Jesus' success here isn't as good as it seems. Notice verses 9 to 10. It feels like a little detail. Jesus has to have an escape route ready, a boat waiting for him in the lake. Why? Because of the crowd, because of the crowd that has come to see him, lest they crush him. Right? They're pressing in so hard to get to Jesus, to be healed by him, that they're in danger of trampling him to death. That sounds like a crowd that is desperate. And I don't want to downplay their needs. These are people who are struggling and suffering, even lifelong diseases. But they are in danger of killing their Savior. Right? If they realize that Jesus was more than just a healer, that he was more than just a prophet, if they realized that Jesus was a savior 
And if they wanted more from him than just healing, this is not what they would be doing. They would be sitting at his feet, listening to the words of life coming from his mouth and receiving his care. So the crowds don't seem to be responding to Jesus actually in the right way. What about the unclean spirits? They're here too. Jesus is showing his power again. He's defeating Satan and his demons as he cast out these unclean spirits. And these unclean spirits make a true confession, right? They say, you are the son of God. But they do not and cannot serve Jesus. At the end of this section here, as we end in verse 12, we see that the Pharisees hate Jesus, the crowds misunderstand Jesus, and the demons know Jesus and oppose him. This is not people repenting and believing in the good news. When you look at it that way, this doesn't sound then like a very successful ministry. What is Jesus going to do? Well, we see what Jesus does next in his ministry in our second point. Jesus appoints the apostles, verse 13 to 19. We are meant to actually read these two passages together, to look at the crowd and to look at the apostles. Mark is drawing our attention to the contrast between the people and the apostles, between Jesus' general ministry to them, and his special act to make these disciples his special servants. But there's a danger as we look at these passages, and I'll tell you what it is. If you think about a company, pick a company, any company, when a company goes through a rough period, um, they often change their strategy. I'm not very good at business, but I think it's called pivoting. You pivot from one way of doing things to another. Switch what you're doing or who you're trying to reach. So look at these two passages, though. Jesus is not pivoting from one kind of ministry to another. He's not saying, well, that didn't work talking to the crowd, so I've got a better plan now. I'm going to call these apostles, and now I'll be successful. He's not changing his ministry strategy in response to some poor reviews from the Pharisees or some disappointing interactions with the crowd. No, when Jesus appoints his apostles, he is continuing his plan for bringing the kingdom of God. His plan has always included the apostles. Now we begin to see just how special Jesus' calling of the apostles really is, starting in verse 13. Let's read that together. He went up on the mountain, and he called to them, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. Mark's focus here is on Jesus' authority. Jesus is the one in charge. He went up the mountain. He called. And he only called those whom he desired. Not everyone from the crowd. He called those whom he wanted to come. So he went up, he called, and he appointed the twelve. All that we see the disciples and the twelve doing here is responding to Jesus' call. They came to him. When you hear those words, we are meant to remember when Jesus called some of these very same disciples to follow him the first time. For Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Levi, Jesus called and they immediately left everything to follow him. 
we're seeing again here in this passage that discipleship is defined by Jesus. Disciples are chosen by him and they obey him in response to his call. That's true for every disciple of Christ. It was true back then. It's true for us. But if it's true for every disciple, how much more is it true for the apostles whom Christ appoints? Jesus, we see here, defines what it means to be an apostle. And he chooses specific men to be his apostles. Let's look at the description of the apostles first. Verses 14 to 15. Jesus appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. First, notice their number. There's only 12. We'll look at the importance of that number later, but notice for now that it's a special, limited group of people, only 12, and these are not 12 volunteers. These are not 12 men who step up to serve Christ. No, Jesus appoints them. And Jesus gives these 12 men a special name, apostles. This name comes from the Greek word to send. These are the men who Jesus will send to represent him. We see what that calling to represent Jesus involves. He says, first, you need to be with me. And secondly, I will then send you to preach and have authority to cast out demons. They need to be with Jesus and then and only then be sent by Jesus. The order of those actions is very, very important. These 12 men need to be taught by Jesus. They need to see his miracles and yes, even be corrected by Jesus before they're able to represent him. This order applies to us today. Even though we're not called to serve Christ in the same way as the apostles, we cannot serve Christ well if we do not first spend time in his presence. It's especially true in public worship where we find ourselves this morning, but also in private as well. There is no replacement in the Christian life for being in the presence of Christ. And as we spend time with him, he equips us and he empowers us to do what he's called us to do. The apostles are going to find that out as they spend the next few months with Jesus before he sends them on their first mission. They need Christ's presence. But Jesus gives them a unique privilege. Here's the privilege. The privilege is to share in his own mission and authority. Jesus sends the apostles to share in the exact same things that he has been doing. Preaching the good news and casting out demons. Think about what he's been doing in Mark. That's what he's been doing from chapter 1 till now. You might notice just in passing that Jesus doesn't mention healing here. But if you look at Mark 6, when Jesus finally does send out the disciples on their first mission, they heal as well. So that's included here as part of Christ's work. Jesus is sending the apostles to do his work. Just step back for a second, because maybe this doesn't surprise us in the way that it should. It really should hit us hard, because Jesus, the Son of God, who was sent by his Father to preach the good news of salvation and to defeat Satan and all the effects of sin, this Jesus shares that amazing mission with ordinary 
people, like the apostles. You know, if it were up to us, we probably wouldn't do this, right? We wouldn't give somebody uh, something so important if they seemed so unqualified. You know how it is. Sometimes we're, we're willing to, to help, let somebody help with a job or a project, uh, but only if they really won't get in the way or mess anything up. So we give them some tiny part in the corner. So even if they do mess it up, it's not a big deal, right? That's not Jesus. That is not how Jesus works. You know, of course, the apostles are not bringing salvation. That's something only Jesus can do. But Jesus sends these men out to do the exact same work he is doing. They are now part of declaring and bringing the kingdom of God. And the reason they can do that is because he sends them out with his own authority. They are preaching in his name and they are casting out demons by his authority. This is way more than just kind of giving them a badge that says they represent Jesus. And now they show it to people and they say, now you got to listen to me. I'm the person sent by Jesus. No. When Jesus gives authority here, Jesus is sharing the authority that the Father has given to him with them to do this work. This is an amazing thing to act with the authority of Christ. That shows us, though, that the apostles are not qualified in and of themselves. There is nothing that they have by themselves that qualifies them to be Jesus' apostles and do his work. They need everything from Jesus. They need him to choose them. They need him to prepare them. And they need his own authority to do his work. So Jesus defines what it means to be his apostles. But he also chooses a very distinct group of men. Who are these men? Well, we see the list again in verses 16 to 19. We see Simon, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas Iscariot. These are the twelve. Everything in this list also shows Jesus' authority in calling these men. Jesus purposely appoints twelve very different men to be his apostles. It's true they're all Jews, but that's about the only thing that they share in common. Right? We see a different background. Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they're all fishermen. Matthew, he's a tax collector. I remember Matthew is another name for Levi in Mark 2. We just actually met him a couple weeks ago. So there's a difference in background. We see a difference in political views too. There's Simon the Zealot. Zealots are known for their hatred of Rome. And who's walking beside him down the road now? Matthew, the tax collector, the one who served Rome. There's also a difference in their religious background. Again, most of these men were devout Jews, not Matthew. There's also even a difference in their characters. Let's take James and John, for example. They really stand out here. Jesus called these men the sons of thunder. It's probably not a nickname that you really want. We see them live up to their nickname in the Gospel of Luke. Remember, Luke chapter 9, a Samaritan village rejects Jesus, and it's James and John who come up with a plan. They ask Jesus, is it okay if we tell fire from heaven to come down and consume them? Right? Not all the apostles were like James and John. They were bold, and they were probably a little foolish 
as well. These are the apostles that Jesus chooses. Twelve very different men. The only thing that they really truly at rock bottom had in common was Jesus. They had Jesus and his powerful, authoritative call to be his apostles. And Jesus had a sovereign purpose for calling each one of those very different men and equipping them, training them as individuals and as a group to be his apostles. He even had a sovereign purpose for choosing Judas Iscariot. We see a hint of it here. Mark says that Judas Iscariot is the apostle who betrayed Jesus. Do you realize that Jesus chose Judas out of all those other possible disciples he could have chosen? He chose Judas knowing the entire time that Judas would betray him and cause his death. I mean, it's completely astonishing that Jesus would choose any of his apostles, but especially that Jesus would choose Judas. Jesus chooses all of them and Judas because he has a plan. He has a plan that he is going to execute through these 12 men now and into the future. And that's really what we see third and finally, that by choosing the apostles, Jesus reveals the purpose of his mission. We see in Jesus choosing the apostles, Jesus establishing his church. These 12 men are the foundation stones of the church. We've seen that Jesus brings the kingdom of God. He brings salvation. And in Mark, we've seen just how broad that is in one sense. He is redeeming all of creation. But now in Mark 3, we see a much narrower focus that Jesus' work in bringing the kingdom of God and bringing salvation is for his people. As he appoints these apostles, he is reminding us, I am working for my people. Christ saves the people to be his people. That is us. That is the church. And how do the apostles then, and the calling of the apostles, how do they teach us about Christ's work of saving and uniting a people, his church? Think first about the context of this passage. Remember what I said? We have to read this in context. Jesus is at work to call a people to himself in the face of unbelief and rejection. The apostles Their faith and their work stands in stark contrast to the other people. We see Christ gathering believers and we see Christ building a body because these apostles are a group. These are not just isolated individuals saved by Christ. Already we see God's people are one group. And the apostles are called and appointed by Christ to lead all of his people, to lead all of his church. We'll see this much more clearly through the rest of the New Testament, but already in our passage, we begin to see that because Christ gives them unique authority that he did not give to any of the other disciples. And that authority to preach and to cast out demons on his behalf was to further Christ's mission, to do his work, to save the people for himself. You could say it this way. We see Christ giving these men a unique authority now to do this little aspect of his work. That's actually the exact same authority that Christ continues to give the apostles through the entire age of the work 
to do his building of the church. Look at what Christ does later. Christ gives these same men, minus Judas, he gives them the great commission in Matthew 28. Not because they're going to do all that work by themselves, but because they lead Christ's church forward. The apostles continue to speak and act with unique authority because they were chosen by Christ, they were present with Christ, and they were witnesses to his resurrection. Think about the book of Acts. Or look at Peter's sermons or Paul's letters. The apostles have a unique role to lead Christ's church. And they're doing all of these things. Let me just underscore that. They're doing all these things for Christ and for his people. The apostles here are really the first fruits of the church. The foundation, the first fruits, the leaders of his church. Now we can see just how great Jesus' vision is for his people by noticing one simple fact. Jesus chose 12 apostles. Don't just gloss over that. That's a significant number because by doing this, Jesus is pointing us back to the Old Testament, to the 12 tribes of Israel who are descended from the 12 sons of Jacob. By calling 12 disciples, Jesus is claiming that he is doing something very similar through these men. He is establishing his people. Think about how great Israel became. Jesus is promising more. The apostles will be the foundation of a large number of people. Remember the promise to Abraham? Your descendants, the ones that are being promised now, to the ends of the earth as great as the sand on the seashore. We are seeing that happening in these apostles. Even as I say that, we need to be careful because Christ isn't starting over. We don't want to say 12 Uh, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, completely new. No, no. Jesus is not leaving one group to start another. You may know people, I do too, some of our Christian brothers and sisters who see Christ's people in the Old Testament and New Testament as two different groups. There are many reasons why that view doesn't fit with the Bible. We see one covenant, for instance, all the way through, the same God who doesn't change. But I just want to bring it back to this passage here. Jesus is not doing something completely new. Instead, Christ's mission in one sense is what he's always been doing, to save and shape a people for himself. But he brings that mission to a greater fullness to his people in the New Testament. See, we greater greater fullness to the church. We see Jews and Gentiles. Think about Ephesians. And we see we have a greater fullness of the Spirit. We have Pentecost and on. Christ is at work through his apostles to bring his church to that greater fullness. But Christ's mission to do that, Christ's mission to call the apostles and to build his church came at the cost of his own life. We might be reminded of the cost that Jesus had when he was serving with these men. Right? They frustrated him many times. They sinned against him many times. But the cost was even higher because the cost was his own life. Remember Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. One of the foundation stones of God's people betrayed Jesus to death. And that is actually the very way that Christ established his people, through being betrayed, through dying, because Jesus died for the sins of his people. He died for the sins of his church in order to save us. And then he did that work to actually bring us into his body, to bring us into the church, to make us living stones in his temple. That is an act of great sacrificial love by Jesus. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 5? 
Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or again, Acts 20, 28, God purchased the church with his own blood. That is the cost of the church, that Jesus Christ died for us. You can see that love of Christ at work already in the lives of the apostles. Each one of these men that was standing before Jesus was uniquely disqualified to serve Christ. Why? Because of their sins. Think about how they turn out in the rest of the Bible. Think about the Gospels. We see Peter's denial of Jesus. Stark example. There's so many other ways that they failed Jesus. But Jesus, in his grace, chose to save them. He chose to forgive them, and he chose to make them serve him. That's the same for us. It's the same for each one of us. Each one of us cannot stand before God because of our sin. We cannot serve God in our sin. But if we believe in Jesus Christ, then he makes us part of his people. He saves us. He forgives us. He brings us in and he puts us to work. And in his work and through our work for him, he makes us perfect. That is what God is doing in Christ by his spirit in us, his church. This is a great and glorious passage as we look at the very beginning, really, of Christ's work for his church that we're going to see stretched through all the New Testament and doing our age now, and actually all the way into eternity. But let me just give you one piece of application now. And it's this. Trust Christ to establish his own true followers. Trust Christ to establish his own true followers. Again, remember the context. There's the many people who are not believing in Christ, and then there's these apostles. Actually, if you look further in, chapter, further in the chapter, you see there's even more people Jesus' own family rejects him. And other scribes and religious leaders are after him. All of these groups around the apostles, all of them, oppose Jesus. But here, right in the middle, this passage is like a ray of light because it's reminding us that it is Christ who builds his church. Christ raises up his apostles in the face of his opponents. And what Christ did at the beginning of his church is what Christ still does today. Not to raise apostles, no, but to bring true followers and to give us godly leaders. We can trust in Christ to continue the work today, to choose, to save, and to strengthen those he wants for his work. That principle applies today. Think about what he's been doing in our church here. Christ has brought his chosen people to salvation. You're a testimony to that. And Christ will continue to bring his chosen people to salvation right here at PRPC. And Christ also raises up chosen men to lead his people. We've seen that as Christ has met our needs through providing a pastor, through providing elders, and Christ will continue to do this work. That Christ building his church in this way gives us great hope for evangelism. As you and I go out to speak to people who are lost, even Christians who are struggling and are being underfed, trust Christ to do the work to lead his true followers to him. He will make them his followers and he will bring them to green pastures. And he has made this church 
one of those ways. But we also, as a church, can be praying for Christ to continue that work to build his church as we pray for elders and deacons. In our own congregation, we're a mission work. We need local men, boots on the ground, to be leading us. We don't just invent them. We don't just kind of pick a person who's alive, who happens to be a man with a heartbeat. No, Christ is going to provide for us. He's given us apostles. Think about Ephesians 4. He gives us pastors. He gives us elders and deacons and many others to lead in our congregation. The takeaway from this passage is simple. Trust Christ to bring his followers because Christ will build his church. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, these are glorious truths that you brought these apostles to saving faith and to an amazing, uh, amazing place of service in your kingdom. And Lord, you are still at work doing some of those same things in our church. Lord, we pray that we would be thankful for what you have done in laying the foundation of the church through the apostles, even laying the foundation of PRPC all those many years ago. And Lord, now we pray that you'd be faithful to what you have promised to do in your church, to build us, to bring those stones, to be made into living stones by your spirit, to join with us in worship. And Lord, to bring us those under shepherds that we need to lead us forward in your work. Lord, we pray that we would not lose heart, but that we would have great faith as we see you answering, as we trust you to do more for us and actually for all of your church around the world. And we pray this with great faith and great trust. In Jesus' name, amen.